0: I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third-generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised uh, livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Food USA and. Make them into uh, serrano-style hands, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at surreyfarms.com or virginiatraditions.com. I bought your peppers. I bought your Vicious,
1: vicious
2: Listening to Cooking Issues Radio on the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you live every Tuesday from twelve to twelve forty-five. I'm Dave Arnold, our host of Cooking Issues, and we're here with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. Call in all your questions to the studio at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. To eight. So uh, today we're being sponsored by uh, S. Wallace Edwards, the ham company. I happen to know Sam Edwards personally who makes that ham. Ham happens to be country ham in particular, although I know, Nastasha, you're more of a prosciutto head. That's true. Yeah. But American country ham happens to be uh, one of my favorite subjects in the whole world. So I might, maybe I'll talk for a second about country ham before we get into anything else. Um, Sam Edwards country ham. Uh, our sponsor today. Uh, his family has been in Surrey for you know I don't know probably a couple hundred years something like that. Surrey is across the river from Smithfield, which is kind of the well-known name in American country hams. They don't really make a good country ham in Smithfield anymore, but uh, you know Sam Edwards really does. And you know he, he mentioned that his grandfather started the business. His grandfather actually wrote an interesting article uh, back I think in sometime in the '60s, and it was about. Um, Peanut-fed hogs. You used to be. You know, everyone talks about the bayota-fed hogs that you get out of uh, out of Spain that make the best, you know, most delicious ham. And in fact, they do uh, make delicious ham uh, because the basically the acorns that these Spanish hogs eat give them a. uh, They have a lot of unsaturated fat, and it changes the fat characteristics of the ham, which means that the ham has this awesome taste that you can't really get any other way. Uh, But the only reason that's really preserved, I think, in Spain is because the the economics are such that they're not allowed to chop down the forest where those not to produce so that they have these they have the ability to produce it whereas we don't our hams used to kick a similar level of butt in fact we're world kind of known i mean our curing techniques are 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 amazing and um so Sam Edward's grandfather actually wrote an interesting article, I think, in the 60s. Or it was quoted in one saying that ham production is going to hell in a ham basket because um, you know, because we're not feeding the, the peanuts anymore. We have a lower slaughter weight than we used to uh, mm-hmm. because you know, the older a pig is when you kill it, the more the enzymes – the enzyme profile in an older hog is different from a, the one in a younger hog. And on a, a larger older hog, aside from being bigger, that can take more age, also the enzyme profile is different, which is going to lead to a better-tasting ham. So these are all things that we've done. But that aside, American curing is totally – Totally different from any other kind of curing, ham curing, and it's a totally different product. Like should not be confused with prosciutto, should not be confused with the serrano. Like these are like, you know, a Actual American treasures. So Sam Edwards is one of the few people who's you know still a fairly large production. Uh, in other words, you can buy it here in in New York. Um, you know he can ship. He's USDA that is doing a very traditional you know great American product and traditional with in Virginia would be kind of a heavy smoke on on his hams and you can make sure you get ones for him that are you know a year a year or older. Uh, and then actually I'm traveling tomorrow to Kentucky. I'm going to uh, tour another great ham producer, Finchville Farms. Finchville Farms uh, out of Kentucky is another great old producer and and, you know a lot of the people who produced hams in Kentucky so think Finchville think um Colonel Newsom's, which is Nancy Mahaffey's hand place. These are people also who have been curing for hundreds of years, not them personally, but their families. You know, and a lot of these guys <laughs> moved to Kentucky back when Kentucky was still Virginia. Uh, so anyway, so I will be uh, visiting. Um, I will be visiting Finchville Farms tomorrow. Actually, it's the first time I've been there, so I'm excited. Along with uh, obviously drinking a lot of bourbon. So pro- we'll probably right. talk about that more next week. Although next week, Nastasha, we might be doing the show live. from... We are
0: doing it from London. Live
2: from London, huh? So we're going to our second road show is going to be in London because next. Next, next week, uh, we're going to be out in London doing the... What's the name of the show we're doing, Nastasha? Do you even know?
0: It's just called the London Cocktail Week. London, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah.
2: So we're doing rotary evaporation over there? Yes, with Oxley gin. We, yeah, which is a vacuum distillation technique for those of you who don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, right? Yes. Yeah? Mm, okay. Uh, so, anyway, uh, let's go on to some questions because we have some email questions from before, if I can just find them. Um Oh my gosh,
0: oh my gosh, Nastasha. <laughs> I've lost the email
2: questions. No, well, the first one's an answer. The first one's an answer. Oh, that's right. So, uh, okay, so some of you might recall. Several weeks ago, uh, we tried to answer the question. What was her name again? What was her name? Uh,
0: Colleen was Col- the big girl.
2: Yeah, Colleen. Uh, she she's a very tall woman and she was having problems with uh with countertops countertop heights and we call mark ladner uh mark ladner is the newest four-star chef in new york city because del posto his restaurant just got upgraded to four stars in the in the new york times so congratulations um and he is tall he's six four and so here's what he wrote back we asked him how do you deal with with this problem of being very tall he said "When, when i was younger i often hunched over which was obviously horrible for my back and neck uh when i built del posto uh had a kitchen designer uh, who recommended a 42 inch counter which is higher than our normal what 36 mm-hmm. 35 36. counter which, which he had recently designed for Grey Kuntz, who's also I guess tall and he says that this counter is a lifesaver and he says most except for the very short love it and he doesn't see any reason why uh, it was Colleen right should yeah. not be allowed to use her special adapter unless it's unsafe or unsanitary and he hopes that that's helpful okay so yes. we, have a, we have a caller caller you are on the air
1: hey how's it going going well Awesome. Well, I've always heard that um, if you burn garlic when making a tomato sauce, it's going to make your sauce bitter. I was wondering if you could tell me why.
2: <laughs> huh. Uh, that is true story. Uh, I don't know why. It kind of caught me uh, uh, off guard. I mean, gar- garlic is pretty complex. Uh, And easy to burn because it's got a a high sugar content. I think that's why it burns so easy. Uh, But I don't – like that acrid burnt taste that you get, I don't know exactly what's going on. It has to be – like all of the interesting stuff with garlic has to do – I mean garlic doesn't really have that much uh, of its characteristic um, sharp, pungent flavor until it's been cut. right? So what happens is is that there's enzymes in the garlic and when you cut it or crush it, those enzymes are acting on – There's like I always forget the names. It's like alanin and alisin and all these ala blah blah blahs. Like that are like these chemicals that start out being relatively odorless uh, and then develop all of their all of their pungency. Uh, after they're cut and then are modified more or less by cooking, and since those are the chemicals that lead to the pungency, I would think that those are also the ones that lead to kind of those acrid uh, flavors when they when they're cooked or when they get burnt. But I can't say for sure. There is an excellent book out on the subject. It's called um, I believe it's called Garlic and Other Alliums, something like that. It's lore. I just bought it. I actually read it, but it's very dense, so I can't remember whether there was any explanation of it because it was too much to look into. But uh, next week we have Harold – do we have a list of stuff to ask Harold from the radio show?
0: We can make one. Let's yes. make a list mm-hmm. and
2: uh, I'll ask him that whether he knows specifically what it is because it, he's read that book and spoke with that person. So he, he's thought a lot about that kind of a problem. Uh, yeah. That's something I should know off the top of my head but do not. Okay. I, I do know, however, when you pressure cook garlic, it uh, it actually – destroys a lot of the of the pungency so that in, – in fact, you know how even when you roast garlic, you, when you roast it, still if you eat a lot of it, it, it comes out of your pores over the, over the course of several days and, and your coworkers don't want to be anywhere near you. Again, I know this from awful experience. When you pressure cook garlic, uh, th- those principles are gone and you can actually eat a whole bunch of garlic without – in fact, we make sauces that are you know upwards of 50 percent garlic and uh, no one has a problem with them and it, it's a very mellow, mellow flavor and it's because a lot of those sulfur-containing compounds that are in the garlic that give it its pungency are kind of destroyed by that by the high heat uh, on the inside of a pressure cooker so uh we will we will keep a list uh okay so um, we have uh, Colin Gore writes in and says he has a handful of things on his mind lately. So we'll, let's look at those handful of things that are, that are on his mind. Uh, Colin's built a vacuum chamber using a compressor harvested from a window-mounted air conditioner to make uh, a vacuum. I love this kind of DIY, kind of you know do-it-yourself kind of stuff. And he says it works wonderfully, uh, but he's wondering about running it for more than a few minutes at a time because he's afraid he's going to burn it out. Uh, you know, I wouldn't worry about it so much. The kind of – the great granddaddy of websites dealing with uh, this problem is – is uh, called the bell jar, uh, and a bell jar being the, you know an old vacuum thing that you put things in a vacuum. The bell jar. So the bell jar, and it's based on a bunch of articles published a long, long time ago in Scientific American, the amateur scientists, which were fantastic. Like I had when I was a kid, like how to build lasers, amazing stuff. Scientific American's old amateur scientist column, freaking amazing, amazing stuff. Anyway, the bell jar has a list of these things, uh, and, and it, it talks a lot about making vacuum pumps cheaply out of air conditioning units and refrigeration units, and a lot of w- what the capability of your unit are depend on um whether it's a rotary uh, pump or whether it's a piston pump most refrigerator compressors are uh you know piston pumps and they're not going to operate near you know nearly as well at low vacuum as these as these rotary pumps are so uh you know um so a lot, a lot of air conditioners have a rotary pump. So if as long as you keep the thermal overload switch on the on the pump, you should be fine. Because if it cuts out, it's not going to get hurt. You also obviously have to make sure that you didn't let the oil drain out of it. Um, you know, otherwise it's going to burn out very quickly. But you should be able to run it no problem. If it's overheating, you'll be able to tell because it's exposed. He also makes a, a good note. Uh, please uh, don't just cut out a, uh, a you know, a compressor out of an air conditioner and let the freon spray everywhere because you're opening yourself up to a fine and you're destroying. In the environment. I might also say don't use a saw when you're cutting a, a compressor off of something because the little filings can get into the compressor and then that's bad, 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 bad news. Colin has more questions, but first I think we're going to go to a caller. Yeah. Caller, you are on the air.
1: Hello, it's Joe here from London, Dave.
2: Hey, how are you doing? We'll be out to great. see you in a, just a couple of – we'll be out in London in just a couple of days.
1: Oh, great. I hope to meet up with you. We've been really inspired by your uh, blog and uh, the show over here. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Dave, my question is um, I'd like to prepare um, large prawns or I guess langoustine or you may call them shrimp, I'm not sure. Right. Um, I want to prepare them ahead of time, uh, sous vide, uh, and then finish them off on a grill so I can get some kind of yard on them. Um, I'm just not sure um, what kind of temperature to cook them at and for how long.
2: Right. right. uh, Shrimp and prawns are interesting because... They contain enzymes in them that, if you uh, if you cook them for extended periods of time, they go mushy. They turn to a paste, right? Yep. And so, uh, you know, vacuum is a, and sous vide is a very very good way. First of all, to infuse flavor into into them, and also to make sure that you know none of the flavor leaches out when you're cooking. But okay. but you're, you're going to want to make sure that you, um, you you do it fairly quickly. You want to make sure that the um, that the, it's cooked through in like you know. I would, I would keep it, if you can, under 12 minutes or something like that. It's, otherwise, you're going to start breaking it down. And a good thing to do is to run a test just to see what happens when you cook it for a long, long time. You'll okay. see it just gets really uh, it gets really nasty. One way to do it, if, if you like more traditional texture, is obviously to put the bag into a very high temp water. And that's what someone like Georges Prelou would do where he cooks his shellfish almost in boiling water even when it's in a vacuum bag. Another option, if you want to go more like the texture that, you, that people want off like a, a butter poached lobster or something like that, is to run it more like 65 degrees for like – Celsius for like, uh, you know, 10 10 to 12 minutes once it's out of its shell, obviously. You know what I mean? So that might be a similar thing you do with with a prawn or a shrimp, but that's going to give you a soft texture, more, you know, more akin to uh, on the lower side of being done than on the higher side. And then obviously you can firm it up with your finishing step, you know, with your finishing sear step, which is going to put more of a... uh, you know more of a a crust on the outside and and get it done but you really the the key thing with it is just to not cook it for too long because it's going to be and cool it down quick after it comes out because it's just going to be a complete nightmare to you you're going to get you cannot believe how bad the texture of a long cooked uh you know shrimp or prawn can be i mean i've it doesn't always happen but it happens enough and you have to spit it out it's like just it's just terrible
1: Yeah, that's really what I was trying to avoid by doing the sous-vide step, because I find that if I do it directly on the grill, if I'm doing like a large, say, like a 10, 12 um, prawn, um, I I can easily overcook it, and it it gets very mushy and not not a pleasant flavor at all.
2: Right. But you're going to flash finish them on this one, right? You're just going to pre-cook them and then flash finish them?
1: Yes, but I'd like to do them in the shell, because uh, the shell adds a nice flavor when it's uh, it's grilled, so... you, will that change the cooking times, you think? Or? No, not
2: much. The shells are usually pretty thick. You can do it head-on too or no? Yes,
1: head-on too. Yeah,
2: because yes. the head's the best part anyway. But the okay. – uh, uh, not the best part. You know, it's delicious. That's what I mean to sure. say. Sure, yeah. But um, one thing you want to be really careful of is that, uh, is that the shells on, um, on shrimp and prawns uh, – Almost always pop vacuum bags. So you're going to want to either double bag or wrap them in in something to protect the bag and to make sure that you have uh, – you know, the, the air doesn't come back into the chamber too fast because you're going to start popping your bags. And after you pack them, you're going to want to let them sit for I – mean, it's good to let them sit to marinate anyway if you're going to use like oil and salt and pepper or something. I mean I don't know what your recipe is but you know, uh, inside the bag. Um, you know, then you're gonna to want to let it sit for a half hour, or so not just to pick up the flavor of whatever you put in, but also to make sure you don't have any holes in it, right? Then I would I would go for a, a fairly quick cook, like uh, like maybe ten to. I don't know the size of them but like 10 10 minutes, 10 to 12 at at like 65 or something like that and pull them out, cool them down and then do your your flash finish almost from cold because they'll already be cooked and so you can cook them at high heat as you want to get that nice color and taste on the outside of the shell without having to worry about cooking the inside.
1: Perfect, Dave. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right, and, and, and uh, please
2: tell us your results. Write right in and tell us whether, whether it worked. This way I can uh, see whether whether that worked. <laughs> okay.
1: I'll maybe even put some photos in as
2: well. Sounds great. Thanks so much. <laughs> have Thanks, Dave. A bye. Break. Oh, and we're going to our first commercial break, but call in your questions at 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues. Oh, how you feel,
0: brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. Oh, good. so much, bone brother.
2: This is a public service announcement from Added Value. Join us Saturday, October 16th at the Red Hook Community Farm. Celebrate the harvest. Visit Brooklyn's largest urban farm. Delicious seasonal foods from local restaurants EC, The Good Fork, Kevin's, The Lobster Pound, and Rice. And of course... Pick up your produce at the Red Hook Farmer's Market. For more information, call 718-855-5531. That's 718-855-5531. Or visit www.added-value.org. This has been a public service announcement from Added Value. And welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call in your questions right now to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128, coming to you live from Roberta's in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, Uh, we have some more of Colin's questions here. He has quite a few questions. We're going to try and hit them all. Uh, So Colin, uh, to refresh you, if you didn't listen to the first segment, Colin built his own vacuum machine, uh, his own chamber vacuum machine using a uh, a – a pump out of a, a compressor out of an air conditioner and there's lots of over the past couple of years people who have done this kind of DIY chambers but not just for food packing for like making models for doing vacuum bagging like when they're doing resin a lot of good reasons to build vacuum pumps out there and a lot of sites with a lot of great information on it so uh he asked a question can the walls of quart size canning jars withstand uh, a full vacuum 14 psi oh yes they can in fact i use this trick all the time when we're, If you have a vacuum machine and you don't have what's called gas flush – so when you're using a vacuum machine and you have gas flush, it means that you suck a vacuum in the bag. Uh, but you know, if you, if you would then seal it and let the air come back in, let's say you had potato chips, bam, the potato chips would get smashed mm-hmm. when the air came back in. It would just get shattered and you have potato dust, which is not what you're looking for, right? Yes. So you have something called gas flush and what that is is that you suck all the air out, so all the moisture is gone. So now your potato chips are not going to go – and there's no oxygen, so the potato chips aren't going to go rancid and they're not going to get uh they're not going to get soft and nasty and then you inject uh a neutral gas back in usually nitrogen's you know sometimes depending on what you're doing CO2 or some crazy mix depending on what you're doing and then you seal it and then when the air comes back in there's a neutral gas in there so that it's bag is still puffy your potato chips don't get smashed and in fact your potato chips are protected because they're inside of a pillow so anyway, uh, so this is a technique that you can use if you don't have gas flush, which we just got actually in our new – we have a new vacuum machine in nice. the school and we'll be reporting on that at some point. But the um, – uh, if you don't have gas flush, quart uh, and larger liter canning jars are a very good way to do it. I would get the – and they can take the pressure no problem. Uh what I would do is I would get the ones, not the ones that have the, the, the thin metal lid that you then pry up, and the reason is that um, they seal once great, and then like after you open the lid to pry it up, like you make that noise when it pops up, a lot of times they won't reseal. I like the old style ones that have a glass lid and a glass base and a rubber gasket and then you just set the rub, the, set the lid with the gasket on top of your canning jar. Take all the metal hardware off of it. It's just going to get in your way. Suck the vacuum and then when the vacuum comes back, the lid gets smashed back onto the top, and the actual vessel takes the pressure for you, not your potato chips or whatever the heck else you're going to pack. And those vacuums, I've had them last for months and months. If the, sometimes you'll get a bad seal on those, but you, you can usually tell within you know, a couple of hours to a day that the seal on that jar is not going to be good. How any do you good. do
0: it without a vacuum machine with those rubber seals?
2: Well, the rubber when you're canning with those things, usually the rubber seals they have a a, a lid on it, right? So you'd you'd boil them. Mm. And you know, you you boil them, um, I guess you start boiling them and then maybe seal them. While they're mm-hmm. boiling and then, they, and then as the as – the, uh, as it cools down, you'll suck a partial vacuum on the top and then you have to open it. I mean it's like – I guess it's an old – I've never actually used them to can. I've only used them to package things. But they're great. You can get them in most, in most uh, houseware stores and we use them all the time. So if you're bringing something that's crisp like apple chips or potato chips or methyl cell F50 uh, you know, meringue pus, which is what we do a lot um, – you know, you can keep them for a long time, and you can, you know, travel in a rainstorm, you know, through Louisiana in a bayou. What it doesn't matter, and the and the stuff's not going to go bad on you. So it's actually a really good technique for bringing stuff with you. Not as good as having gas flush, but um, because it's just a pain in the butt. But anyway, uh, so on the subject of vacuums, Colin wants to know that he's making apple chips, and he wants to he wants to get that same kind of same foamy texture that you get from. Um, from doing uh, freeze-drying and he wants to know how can can you do that. Well, that's a pain in the butt, Colin, because freeze-drying is a really good technique for doing that. Nothing else really approximates freeze-drying the way freeze-drying does. So the way a freeze-dryer works – is you freeze something, uh, you know, usually at a fairly low temperature to, to, to minimize the destruction of stuff to the cells quickly in low temperature, and then you let it, you put a very strong vacuum on it, and you let it uh, heat up slowly in that till the water uh, inside of it basically sublimates, and what that means is you put it in a condition where uh, the water doesn't doesn't want to go from a solid to a liquid and then to a gas; it just evaporates directly from a solid to a gas, and so what that means is is that the structure Structure of the product is held rigidly by by the ice until the water leaves it. At which point it, it maintains its structure, and that's why you have things that look pretty much life size, but they have no more water in them. They're very porous, they're crunchy, they're great, and that's freeze drying. The problem is the equipment is usually somewhat expensive. You need a, you need a fairly good vacuum pump. You also need what's called a cold trap because everything that you everything you um, suck off, you then need to um, recondense back. So you need a fairly cold cold trap. I've tried to do it kind of a ghetto style freeze dryer using my rotary evaporator but my pump isn't quite good enough my vacuum pump isn't quite good enough so um you know some people have one. A- alex talbot at ideas and food has one um you know a couple of restaurants have them i think i think maybe laurent grau might have one at l2o i don't know anyway we don't have a vac- uh, freeze dryer someday someday i'll have one um anywho so but there is an interesting uh patent that's been applied for i think it's still under patent so if you do this you're going to be breaking all kinds of patent laws i don't really care about that but there's a technique called uh uh bas- it's basically fruit puffing using vacuum and then carbon dioxide and if you are the kind of person who can rip apart an air conditioner and build a vacuum chamber then you are also the kind of person who can do this and hopefully i don't have time to do it so maybe you can do it and tell me tell me how it works. So here's here's what you do. First thing you do is you partially dehydrate a product till it's down to like about 60%, uh, 20 to 60% water. You can do that with a standard dehydration or you can use what's called osmotic dehydration. What that is is you put, you put your fruit into an, a very intense sugar syrup and that draws the water out uh, osmotically. That's osmotic dehydration. So you can do it that way. You can do it with a partial dehydration step. But the trick is to get rid of I think about half the, half the water or so, a little under half the water. Then you take your apple slices at this point. And you put them into into your vacuum chamber and you suck a full vacuum on them for a little bit, right? Then you put a CO2 tank on and you pressurize it to about, you know, a little over 200 – psi right so uh and that's the minimum is about they in the patent literature the minimum is about 200 220 psi of co2 and you want to leave that for like 60 minutes under the high pressure co2 so what's happening is a co2 is going into the fruit and it's basically getting uh, it's, it's going all the way into the uh the cells and then you want to vent it uh, over the course of like uh 30 seconds so after that 60 minutes you vent it over the course of 30 seconds and the rapidly escaping co2 takes with it the water and puffs the fruit up at the same time so that's dehydrates and any further dehydration you could probably do in a normal dehydrator, or something like that so it's a room temperature technique so it's similar to freeze drying that way and um it doesn't require um uh, as much expensive equipment as a as a as a freeze dryer does. So if you can try this vacuum then CO2 puffing, Colin, I would be much obliged if you then tell us how it works and post pictures. But, be extremely careful with pressure vessels make sure that you are using a pressure vessel that can handle the pressure i don't want anyone blowing something up and you know basically creating a pipe bomb and killing themselves uh, over something i said so you know certain uh, you know schedule 40 pipe which is a standard pipe you get will not handle these kinds of pressures um safely uh schedule 80 pipes some schedule 80 pipes can handle it um so just anyway so be careful and make sure you know what you're doing uh you know and just but i'd love to see someone try that even though i think you'd be infringing on a bunch of patents and you know that they might come and arrest you but uh, you know again uh hopefully not um and colin's last question is uh he's making an alginate bath and he wants to know how long he can keep it all right so i don't know have we talked about this ever the alginate bath no i don't even think you talked about the pancakes the pancakes? Yeah. No, All right. We'll, we'll talk about this then. OK. OK. okay. So uh, sodium alginate is uh, kind of very famous. It's made from seaweed. And what it does is it's the stuff that people make little balls out of uh, in restaurants. Like they call it caviar, blah, blah, blah. And the standard thing is you take – and by the way, it's also how they make the pimento on the inside of, a, of a, an olive. It's how they make fake onion rings. It's how they – you know, some dog foods are made this way. And so you take the seaweed, sodium alginate, and you mix it in. And whenever it touches anything with calcium in it, it all of a sudden turns to a gel. Right, so the standard technique that uh, you know it was used for forever to make fake blueberries, and it was used also by science teachers who you know do it in science. But the famous early restaurant application was Ferran uh, Adria who 's actually coming to speak at the French culinary today later oh, today he 's cool. going to be signing books and coming to the, coming to the fci so uh, so Ferran you know famously made melon caviar out of alginate and alginate in restaurants was born right now the problem with with alginate is is that it, it doesn 't really have a great texture or taste. And so, In fact, it steals taste. It's like a flavor thief. So alginate – and also the other problem is that you make these balls. You drop alginate into, into calcium. It forms this beautiful sphere. But then over the course of the next couple of minutes, it turns solid. And once it turns solid, it's completely unpleasant. If it doesn't pop in your mouth, it's, it's unpleasant. So then the next step is that you know, chefs started doing what's called reverse alginate. So in reverse alginate, instead of dropping alginate into a calcium bath and forming these little balls, you're dropping calcium – into an alginate bath, and then you get a little film of uh, of alginate around it, but the inside stays liquid forever, right? <coughs> and so, and so that is kind of I think it's 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 a better technique from a from a food standpoint. But then you have these alginate baths sitting around, and the question is, well, how long can you keep that alginate bath without it going bad? I've never kept one longer than about two or three days, uh, but a lot of it depends on how heavily it's used, how much calcium you know gets touches it, and you have to use something called a sequestrant. And so, what a sequestrant is, is a sequestrant um, sucks up the calcium that's inside of your uh, solution and uh, stops it from causing the alginate to react until there's so much calcium there that a reaction happens. And the and, and the two good I mean. Sodium citrate is kind of the the sequestrant that people just have lying around. It's not so good. Sodium citrate is also a buffer, uh, which is good, but it's kind of crap. You really want to use sodium hexametaphosphate. Uh, I'll say that again because that's a pain in the butt. Sodium hexametaphosphate hexametaphosphate, is that right Anyway, call it Shimp, A S H M P Shimp. And uh, a little little dabble duty on that one. You know, you get yourself a couple hundred grams of that and that's a lifetime supply of shimp, and uh, put it into your into your alginate bath and it should last a good long a good long time. We actually did a demo recently, uh Nastasha and I for what the heck was that show called? Uh,
0: foodography.
2: Mm, yeah. I mean, for the we, Cooking Channel. For the Cooking Channel. I mean, it's not it's not out yet or anything, but what we did with that was uh, we we wanted to do like our version of the McGriddle kind of, which is, you know, for those of you that, and I don't, I don't you know, I've never had a McGriddle, but it's basically, uh, McDonald's puts like crystals of, uh, of uh, maple Mc- syrup or goop, some sort of maple syrup goop on mm-hmm. the inside of their pancake, and the reason they're doing that is because the pancake becomes, I think, a sandwich. Yeah, with egg it.
0: inside. Yeah, yeah,
2: yes. something, yeah, something like that. Anyway, so what we did is we made, uh, we did reverse algae. We mixed calcium with maple syrup and then uh, put it into alginate. So we had these little balls of maple syrup that, then, when you bit into them, they pop. You actually get a pop of maple syrup. And we folded a bunch of them into a pancake batter, buttermilk pancake batter, your standard buttermilk pancake batter, and cook them. And they were actually pretty good. I thought.
0: Yeah, no, they were delicious.
2: They were delicious. So you t- made them
0: into silver dollars. So they were. Uh, yeah, yeah, right.
2: Little silver dollar mm-hmm. pancakes. So take that McDonald's. But anyway, so uh, it sh- it should your alginate bath should last a good long time. We're going to go to a break, Dave. We are? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Well, we're going to come back uh, from our second session, but uh, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Uh, Call in your questions to 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128. We're going to be here for about another 15 minutes. And by the way, we mentioned the list we're going to keep of questions we're going to ask McGee. He's in Japan right now, or we would call and ask him right now. Uh, But uh, the man himself is coming to uh, the French Culinary for his class next week. The
0: 21st and 22nd
2: of October. And there are still slots available for those of you that want to come meet the man in person and take the two-day McGee Lecture Series class at the French Culinary Institute. It's a class unlike any other, actually. We're going to be doing some Ikijime, killing some fish. We might be doing – what else are we going to do? We're We're getting p-
0: a giant lobster. I don't again. know where they're going to do with a giant
2: lobster. We're going to definitely do some uh, lime juice. T- it's, it's, a, it's a class unlike any other. Let's just put it that way. You can go check it out on the French uh, Culinary website, which is, I don't know, frenchculinary.com, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, so uh, I have a question from Patrick Brawley, and he's wondering, uh, in general, what percentage of ascorbic acid to use as an antioxidant. Uh, and so the, the thing is, ascorbic acid is it's vitamin C right so and we use it all the time when we're when we're you know doing fruits like apples or anything else it's going to turn brown we put ascorbic acid in to prevent it from turning brown in fact we put ascorbic acid into uh, apple juice as we make it it'll stay green and fresh tasting until it actually spoils it'll never go brown it'll never have that oxidized apple taste and uh the question of percentage is an interesting one Uh, i spoke to nils about it actually this morning we always just add by eye we've never actually measured how much ascorbic acid we're doing Uh, uh, it's not hypercritical how much you use it, but I did some research and usually it, it, how much you use depends on your application. So if you're going to make a – let's say you're cutting apples and you're going to put ascorbic acid into uh, the water and you're going to try to try to keep it, then it's usually a higher dose. Or if you're going to dehydrate it, then afterwards you want the ascorbic acid uh, to enough to get on the apple to have it really make a difference. Then you're going to probably use something on the order of – six grams a liter something like that right but if you're adding it to juice then you probably need a lot less you probably need like maybe half of that like Three grams per liter, or you know something, something like that. But we usually just add like you know a teaspoon or so to per quart or something like that, mm-hmm. or less. Uh, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't really affect the flavor that much. Ascorbic acid is a much lower um, has a much lower impact on flavor than like citric acid. Which brings me to my next point: never confuse citric acid and ascorbic acid. Ascorbic acid is vitamin C. Ascorbic acid is the antioxidant. Citric acid, and it does not taste like lemons, it an, has an acidic taste, but it doesn't taste like lemons. Citric acid does not have the same antioxidant power as ascorbic acid. Citric acid does taste like the acid in lemons, right? But they're often confused. Sour salt that you buy in the supermarket is citric acid, right? You want to make sure you get ascorbic acid. And when you buy ascorbic acid, if you go to a GNC or whatever, your vitamin store, and you buy uh, vitamin C powder or pills, you want to make sure you get the straight stuff and not stuff that's like got rose hips and all this other nonsense because that's going to add flavor and you're really not looking to add uh, flavor to to your product. Um, Wait, so if
0: you're going to make apple cider and you put it in there, is it not going to turn the apple cider brown?
2: It's not only not going to turn the apple cider brown; it's not going to taste like apple cider. Mm. It's going to taste like fresh apples, right? So the so the so when we're doing work. Where we want the apple, we want the characteristic flavor of an apple. Like, let's say we're juicing, uh, like, you know, my favorite, Ashmead's kernel, right? I want the juice to taste like, that's an apple variety. Uh, and I want the, and by the way, Nastasha and I, next week when we go to London, we're gonna go to the Brogdale collection, which is uh, Cornell has the finest collection of, biggest, I mean, and also finest, I guess, collection of apples in the world. But they also have they have a lot of non culinary apples. The Brogdale, which is you know you know the UK's apple collection in Kent, uh, which is outside of London. Uh, they have the largest collection of culinary apples in the world, so Nastasha and I are going to go there, and I'm going to eat so many apples that um, that basically they have to shove a like a needle in my stomach and like evacuate all of the craziness. I'm going to eat apples until I pass out. Basically, I'm going to take have become allergic to apples actually over the last couple of years, so I'm going to bring a whole bunch of Benadryl with me, and I'm just going to I'm going to wait until my throat starts to swell. I'm going to inject myself with uh, with epinephrine and take Benadryl because I'm I'm there to eat as many apples as is humanly possible, and we'll report back. Uh, anyway, so if you're juicing Ashmead's kernel, which I hope to taste next, next uh, week, uh, because our supplier of meats kernel uh, gut was destroyed this year because we, there was a killing frost in, in parts of the northeast this year. Anyway, uh, so uh, and when you're juicing it and you want that taste of the fresh apple, if you want the juice to taste like you just bit into that apple, minus the crunch, mm-hmm. then you use ascorbic acid and it's going to retain its original color and its original flavor. It's not the flavor we associate with apple juice. The flavor we associate with apple juice and apple cider is that brown flavor because mm-hmm. the oxidation doesn't just change the color, it also changes the flavor. Uh, and so, you only add it if you're looking for that fresh flavor, and you don't add it if you want that that you know cider and or and or juice flavor. Um, but that said, I love that fresh flavor, and it makes really great mixers. And so, if you're juicing your own apples, we use we go through ascorbic acid like it's like it's going out of style. Uh, the other question Patrick had is he was he was trying to uh, uh, make an agar gel. I have a lot of uh, hydrocolloid questions this time. Yeah, yeah. well, you're was, having
0: the class coming up too. <laughs> uh,
2: but it, I, I would push the class, but it's sold out. you it have really? Yeah, it's sold out. Like we do a hydrocolloid class at school where we teach you how to use all of these things like agar, xanthan, also meat glue, which is transglutaminase. We're going to show you how to use SPL, which is the enzyme we use to do clarifications. All this stuff is great, but unfortunately, I think the class. I mean, maybe it's not sold out. Check it on the FrenchCulinary.com. I think it's. I think it's sold out. I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, so uh, he's making Patrick's making a an agar gel. Agar is another seaweed gel. It's a great one. I highly recommend that you know if, if you're just starting playing with hydrocolloids, use agar because you can use it to clarify, you can use it to set gels, you can use it to make fluid gels, which are my one of my favorite things to do with uh, hydrocolloids in the kitchen. Uh, but he wants to make uh, the problem with agar is agar is brittle, right? So it breaks very easily. He's trying to increase the elasticity, and he says. Uh, you know, and typically you would do that by adding another gum called locust bean gum, another natural gum. That one's from basically ground up seeds, um, and so the. The question is, is that he doesn't want to use uh, and the locust bean gum basically uh, just modifies the agar so it's less brittle, right? So it's a, you, a lot of times if you add uh, like a thickener like that to a gel, uh, so thickeners, locust bean gum, agar is a gel, you can make it a little bit softer. And he says, is there anything else you can use? Well, because because he, he says LBG locust bean gum in the biz we call it LBG uh, that it's too expensive. I don't know what the per pound cost is on LBG when you're buying it, but you're not going to use that much. I would go ahead and buy the LBG. I mean, unless you make because you know one pound of LBG should be in more than enough to do two hundred, you know, two hundred more, three hundred pounds of uh, just as a softener uh, of uh, agar gel. So I don't know what you're charging, what they're charging for. I mean, check Terra Spice in in the U.S. Uh, I don't know or Le Sanctuaire they sell it. But the the problem is you can go with a much cheaper gum like guar, but guar it tastes terrible guar is another bean it's very similar to locust bean gum not quite as good probably at modifying the texture but it will work Uh, the problem with guar is like i say is it tastes horrible unless you buy flavor-free guar from tic gums but i don't know how cheap the uh, tic gums flavor-free guar is but that is one way around it Uh, so hopefully that is helpful and we have one last question from norway uh, so, uh, Eric from, with the uh, real spelling with the K, mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, so Eric from Norway uh, r- uh, writes in and he's making, he's in a restaurant in Norway and he's making a lot of lobster stock. Uh, and he's making a lobster stock and then reducing it um, for use later and he says that he's getting a good um he's getting a good taste out of the lobster stock presumably he's doing it tradi- traditional way which is you break up the lobster shells you wrote where you roast and or roast and or break up or both I don't know whichever order doesn't really matter till you get some color on them and then you break them up and then you you cook them in uh in liquid to extract the flavor from the shells right that's typically then you would strain out the shells and then you would and you know use the stock uh after that he reduces it makes it uh, makes a reduction out of it he says it's usable but it doesn't taste like fresh lobster um, do you have a better way to do it? And can he do it in a pressure cooker? because he needs an excuse to get one, well, I will. I will do anything I can. Send me a menu. I will give you an excuse to buy a pressure cooker. But this is not that excuse because. Um, and I was talking to Nils about this actually uh, earlier today. You don't. One of the main problems people have when they make a lot any sort of crustacean stock is they boil the uh, they boil the shells too long, and they, the the all of a sudden the stock will take on this like horrible we ascribe it i don't know technically whether it is but nils and i always call it the calcium taste and all of a sudden starts to taste not like the shellfish itself but like literally like you're chewing on shells and we ascribe that to like maybe the calcium being leached out so while i've never done it so i'm always horrified i'm always making sure that people don't leave the shells in my stocks too long when we're doing it because i i dread that taste uh once you pull it out and you reduce it that's fine you're never going to get that taste but um But anyway, so Nils – so don't use a pressure cooker on that one because I'm almost guaranteeing you that the higher temperature is going to cause an increased release of of that stuff and you're going to get that taste. I I can't – I'm almost guaranteeing it because I haven't actually done it but that's my feeling. That's my strong feeling that that's what's going to happen. But Nils said that you – because he had tested this. I asked him whether he could get a fresher flavor. If you don't roast the shells – uh, beforehand, you're not going to have as intense a flavor, but maybe it's going to be okay because you're going to reduce it. But it might be closer to a a fresh lobster flavor. Another thing, um, you know, e- you know, um, Eric had asked whether he can clarify the stock and is he going to lose a lot of flavor out of it. I don't think he's going to lose a lot of flavor if you clarify your stock, like doing a gel clarification or like that. But if you're preserving the oil, he said he had the oil on the top of the stock and he takes the oil off. He emulsifies it back into the s- stock anyway. If you're going to emulsify oil back into the stock as part of a reduction. I don't necessarily see the point in clarifying it because you're you're just it's going to make it unclear once you emulsify the oil in anyway so if if you're going to have oil in it i don't see the point of clarifying it but clarifying the water phase by itself isn't i don't think going to damage the flavor that much. might make it cleaner a little lighter but cleaner one last suggestion i have for you to really extract some flavor out of it is you might consider breaking the shells up either roasting them or not depending on what flavor you want and then doing um circulating some butter in the shells first to extract some of the oil soluble flavors basically making like a lobster Butter. Reserve that. Then do a stock with that. Suck out all the water soluble stuff. Then reduce that. Then do your emulsifying, like almost like you were finishing the reduction with the with the basically lobster butter you've made. And then you should get the maximum amount of flavor out of those shells without, uh, hopefully, without sucking out the the evil nasty calcium bits. And you know if you do it right, you should be able to get you know maybe a fresher flavor like maybe you could also maybe do the butter poach before you do the uh before you but do the butter poach before you roast them and then roast them and then you could do all sorts of combinations but again I'm very curious as to what happens so you know, you, you should write in hopefully and tell us and tell us what happened. Just don't put it in the pressure cooker. Uh, but I love pressure cookers. Again, I'll give you any excuse. Ask me any other question. I'll tell you you need a pressure cooker, but not for that one. Uh, one last question I had it actually came into the blog, but I'll just answer it here: Is uh, can you make bananas Justino without a centrifuge, and can you do it with agar clarification? So for those of you that haven't uh, come to any of our events recently, one of our favorite new drinks. In fact, we did it at the uh, Heritage Radio Network, uh, you know, fundraiser a couple weeks ago, is a uh, bananas Justino. And uh, so, uh, and the name is too. The derivation of the name is too silly to go into now. But basically, we, we make a rum banana sustino and we make a bourbon banana sustino. Uh, and uh, so, what you do is is you blend uh, bananas. So when you're doing bourbon banana sustino, it's five uh, it's five bananas per liter of bourbon, and you blend them. You add a little bit of uh, of our magical enzyme pectinex SPL, which is you know a genius. In fact, it doesn't that recipe doesn't work without it because we tested it at uh, the New York Culinary. Experience the event we did. Was it last week? Was it only last week? <laughs> was, holy, yeah. holy <laughs> crap! Anyway, so you, you blend it together, you put it in a centrifuge, and you spin it at four thousand, uh, you know, G's uh, for like you know, fifteen minutes, and you get this delicious, clear delicious clear bourbon with banana in it and then you we, we make uh ice cubes that are basically either if we're going to use it today it's brown sugar lemon and water if we're going to use it tomorrow and vanilla it's brown sugar citric acid and uh and, and you know water and uh vanilla if we're going to use it later anyway and so it's a great drink and it's garnished with uh candied ginger it's great we love it anyway uh so that particular drink Needs a centrifuge, but you could do an agar clarification of it. I don't know what your yield is going to be. So you might have to add uh, – I mean your yield might be not – I mean I know your yield won't be as good. So what you would do – and the other problem with agar clarification with bourbon is that if you don't have access to liquid nitrogen, the bourbon won't freeze. So Oh, but you could do quick agar clarification. I was thinking freeze-thaw. My brain just went on zorch. You could do quick agar. So then what you would do is you would blend the bananas and the bourbon. You would um, – I would take some water, right? Uh, I would hydrate. So let's say let's, I'll give. – we'll do an actual recipe here, right? Let's say you blend uh, – what do you think? I don't know, like 200 grams of bananas mm-hmm. and a liter of bourbon. So that's roughly 1,200 milliliters, right? Let's say you took 400 mils of water. Uh, what is that, 1,800? Yeah. Shoot, 1,800? No, that's 4, a... 2, 6, S-
0: 1,600.
2: Well, I can't do the math. Anyway, then then 0.2% of that. So let's say it was two liters. Let's say you had two liters of stuff. You would take... um you know uh for four grams of agar you would then hydrate that in the water portion don't add the water to the bourbon and blended bananas hydrate it in your water portion make sure that you put it the agar into the water cold make sure it boils and then simmers for a couple of minutes to make sure it's hydrated temper your bourbon back and bananas back into the uh, water and then let that set in the uh and once it sets break it up with a whisk, and like gently pass it through cheesecloth. Again, I don't know what your yield will be, but it should get a similar result. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason we use a centrifuge is I have three. Well, know. and
0: the events are usually upwards of 300 people attending so
2: yeah i mean you could definitely make it at home this way you know but but like our yield is just so high using the you know we get almost zero loss when we do it uh in the centrifuge and so that's the reason we use the centrifuge but um you can definitely make banana sustino at home (laughs) using agar and uh and bananas and bourbon and um, i almost guarantee you it will work right no.
1: Yes. All
2: right. So next week, save up your questions. We will be doing live from London. But unlike last week when we did it, uh, we are going to be uh, both Nastasha and I will both be in London. And so I think Jack is going to be our, our local our local host. Is that true, Jack? Our intrepid engineer who doesn't come on the air very often, but is runs the show here. Basically, without it, we uh, we wouldn't have it. Uh, but before we go, I will leave you with this with this <laughs> one thing. So we went uh, we did an event on last uh, Saturday. Saturday.
0: Yesterday, uh, two three. Three
2: days ago. What, 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 now, what was the name of the event again? It was uh,
0: Live Fit or Die, or no Fun Fit in the City. Fun
2: Fit, and Live Fit or Die. Where did you get that? It's crazy. Fun Fit in the City. Anyway, we were at the Discovery, the Discovery Zone. It's called right. It's a school. It's a charter school in Harlem on 125th Street, and uh, was it in Madison or Fifth? I forget.
0: Between both.
2: Yeah. Anyway, so it's just, it's actually an amazing school. We went to visit. It. It's really incredible. It's like it's a huge place. It looks amazing. Like it's the kind of school I wish I could have gone to when I was a kid. Anyway, we were doing an event there for the Liberty Science Center and the Food Network who were putting an event together and they were talking about nutrition. And so they asked – uh, you know, they asked us to go up and do, uh, do you know, do a demonstration that somehow I had something to do with nutrition for like a couple hundred people, and immediately, of course, gymnemic acid popped into my head. So, gymnemic acid is uh, the thing we use that erases your sense of sweet. So, we passed out uh, a, you know, a bunch of gymnemic acid, which is a leaf basically from the uh, gymnema sylvestre. It's a plant from India, Oakley is the sugar destroyer, and uh, and you eat this incredibly awful tasting uh, leaf powder, and for about half. An an hour you can't taste anything sweet at all at all no nothing no sweetness and so we passed out the powder and along with uh bananas not bananas justino it was because it was all kids so no liquor unfortunately uh, strawberries marshmallows chocolate sugar honey uh and i think a couple other things anyway we passed them out in bags and you know, we're basically trying to show people you know what food items taste like without the sugar in it, and we actually do that demo in the McGee class. Uh, anyway, so we had a bunch of people there, and then I was on stage. And a lot, by the way, like we opened it, right? So we were kind of the opening band. But uh, you know, they had uh, Rachel Ray was on next, and Mehmet Oz, and some guy from Men's <laughs> Health who I can never, I don't remember yeah, his name, and, 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 and uh, basketball Alonzo Mourning, real, yes. yeah, I mean a real dude. Anyway, it's so, like real, like real people. Anyway, so uh, you know, unlike us, and. Uh, So, so I'm sitting there, and I felt bad that uh, you know that the people didn't have more to eat. And plus, there was a huge bowl of oranges on the on the counter. And so I open up the orange so I can taste the orange. Oh, pineapple juice! Uh, I taste the orange to see kind of how bad the orange tastes without sugar. It was awful. And uh, and so then I'm stupidly I'm sitting here eating an orange, and now I feel like a bad host because I have all these people out in the audience, and they don't have any oranges. And of course, I have nowhere near enough oranges for like all the people in the audience. And uh, like an idiot, I say, oh, because I'm eating this orange, oh, would, would any of you like to have an orange? And of course, everyone's hands shoot up, right? Immediately. So I'm like, crap. And so now I'm like, you know, like the t-shirt gun lady, you know, I'm like hurling oranges out into the audience. Now, I'm not exactly like Captain Catch and Throw here. You know what I mean? In fact, I told this one guy, I was like, sorry, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm not very good at throwing things. So I, I hit, I got to him, fine, he was a catch. So then... My biggest fear was I was going to – in fact, I think I said it was like I'm going to bean someone with one of these damn oranges. And I hit a lady square in the head with an orange. I bounced the orange straight off the top of her head. I was like – and like I saw her. Her hands were there. It wasn't actually a bad throw. Maybe it was a little too much of a line drive to her. But her hands were there and the hand didn't close around the orange in time. And it bounced off of her head and, and the, the lady behind her caught it. So it's total total orange pandemonium, but I think no one came up and tried to beat the crap out of me afterwards. <laughs> so I think they first were. Real that was with our first real people. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So there. that uh, that was uh, it. Was a lot of fun, and hopefully those guys got something out of it. Anyway, so get your questions ready for Cooking Issues coming to you live from London next week. This has been Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards Fine Country Hams.
1: Vicious, vicious vodka. Oh, you did that, got me on this corner, and I don't know where I'm at, supposed to meet my baby, I'm 20 minutes late.